Hello, everyone, and welcome to this fall's Cap Chat podcast. <laughs> I'm Dr. Mindy Waite, and with us, as always, we have Dr. Jessica Lockhart. Hello, everybody. And we know we've sort of taken the summer, the spring off to get our lives in order, respectively. Um, but we want to come back with something, I guess, relatively, I'm not saying going to say soft or easy, but something pretty straightforward, which is just kind of we're chatting about unquote, five things we would never do as a trainer. And Jessica, I'll tell you, I had tried, I didn't get to five things. I only got to four things. And that's partially because, you know, as, as scientists, um, it's hard to say never, right? And so there were very few things I, I suggested I would never do. Sorry, I'm watching someone else's dog. Because <laughs> um, never is a very big statement. Yes, never say never. But I do think we could maybe come at it as five things that unless there's a big change, I would strongly avoid. How about that? Is that, I like is that, that. scientific enough? I like that. <laughs> enough, enough ways out that we can change our minds when information changes. And it kind of sounds like some of the things that you had picked were in line with some of the things I had picked in that they were um, focused on maybe avoiding the use of certain types of punishers. So my number one is I would never at this time in my career use a shot collar or a prong collar simply, not simply because, but especially because I'm not trained in those methods. And so I know I would use those methods inappropriately and that there's a lot of potential fallout from those methods. And so if they were to be used, my opinion is it would have to be in very specific circumstances by somebody who's very well trained in using them. And that is just not me. Yeah, I think... um... I would 100% agree with that. I think a shock or a prong collar would not be the first thing I reach for under any circumstances. And I've, I've been in the field long enough to have seen development here, which is nice. So people who've been training for a long time, um, it used to be that's where you started. That was how what everybody learned. This is You're going to train your dog, you better go get something that's going to give a nice good punishment. Unfortunately, things have changed. And I would definitely say um, I see so many issues that are created purely because of these two specific types of training devices um, that they just aren't worth it. And that's not to say that there aren't times and places where you've tried everything and this is what's left. I, I don't I don't know. I think there are trainers out there swung way far the other way. They're like, we would never, ever touch them ever in a million years. But like there was a case where I had a family living on a very busy street and their dog was a door darter and the dog needed to learn. It couldn't dart because it would dart straight into traffic. Like it was, it was dangerous for the dog to continue this behavior. And we tried a lot of the avoidance things, training up to the door. It's just the door was just too much fun. And so, you know, with the help of people who really knew what they were doing, so people who were very experienced with this, worked out in the field, um, we set it up. It was one trial. It was quick and relatively painless. You know, I mean, it is a, it is a collar that's based on providing discomfort, um, kind of startle and discomfort is how it works. And the puppy tried to bolt through the door. Fortunately, it did not. It learned what we were hoping it learned, and it quit door darting. The collar came right off. It was seriously one trial and done, but it saved the dog's life, you know. But for me and my dogs personally, outside of 
dream scenarios like that. Um, I would never bring something like that into the situation with my own personal pets. I fully agree. And I think you had something that was very, not very, but punishment based as well, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so for me, it's the squirt bottle, like just bringing out that squirt bottle and randomly squirting your animals in the face. Um, I mean, to, to the animal, it is you're just randomly squirting them in the face. We're really slow as far as reflexes go in the animal world. Humans are not as quick as we like to think we are. So, you know, the behavior has happened. It's finished. And then all of a sudden you're squirting them in the face and they're like, why are, you know, why is this happening? I was just sitting here, you know, and by that time that your dog has forgotten that it was digging in the flower bed or they were barking at someone. Um, you've missed the opportunity, but you're still delivering punishment. And so I think that just between you and I on this whole thing, I think what we're saying is as trainers, our first go-to is not punishment. That when, when we're sitting down to teach or whatever, that we're looking more on the opposite side of the spectrum. What can I reward? What can I reinforce? Where, where do I start? So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then what's the next thing I want to go to? So another thing I would never do, and I think you and I went in sort of like opposite, not opposite directions, but very different thought process directions here (laughs) is one thing I would never do is um, guarantee my results to clients, even though I really, really desperately want to do that. And yeah. the reason mm-hmm. I say that is, of course, you know, we're, it's it's a it's a it's a living organism. Um, behavior can be complex, and so from a legal standpoint, and even from an ethical standpoint, I think it would be wrong to almost ever guarantee any type of result. Um, but I understand. I've thought about this a lot recently. I understand that clients want that. And I wish I could give that to them. And I say that because, you know, if I'm going to have some sort of medical surgery, every surgery <laughs> comes with risk, right? There's no guarantee from any surgery either, right? right. So any sort yeah. of medical intervention. Um, but if I have a doctor who says, I guarantee you results versus another doctor who like maybe more informed is like, well, I can't guarantee results because like there's the, here's the odds of this thing happening. And here's the odds of like the results you want. Um, like that person might be right. But as the client, I want to know, you know, I want to be <laughs> guaranteed of that. And so I can very much understand why clients choose to go to people who make these guarantees, even though those guarantees you and I both know are not real. Um, and that's hard. Yeah. No, I, I think the thing that I do, at least when I'm talking to my clients is like, I will guarantee you that I'll work as hard as I can and that I'll do my best. Um, and I'll guarantee that I'll be honest with you and it will be, I'll have straightforward conversations and give you a realistic expectation. But yeah, I can't guarantee what your animals are going to learn. I can't guarantee what you're going to do with your animal, you know? There's, there's too many variables that go into it. And, and I understand by the time, usually people are contacting me, they tell me how much they've spent on everything else. Like, well, we took it to a vet, we took it to five different trainers and we've been to a board and train and we've done, you know, we've done the e-collar and the prong collar and we've done um, boot camps. We've done everything. I'm like, okay, but now you're coming to me. I have to not only undo the prong collar and the e-collar and everything else that you've done, but then I have to go back and develop a way to teach them what you're, what you've been trying to teach them for however many months, years you've been working. So I can't, I just can't guarantee any of that. Like, I don't know what level of trauma your animal is experiencing. I don't know what's happening, but 
I can guarantee that I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I can guarantee I the things I can control. So, um, yeah. And I think, and I, you know, I'll talk to clients like, well, we went to this guy and he guaranteed us. And I'm like, well, then did it work? Cause you're calling me. So, you know, and they're like, well, it worked for a little bit. And I said, well, a lot of those people that tell you they, they have a guarantee, they're really good at suppressing behavior and making your dog look good for, you know, a shiny minute before the rest comes back through the new coat of paint, you realize they didn't fix it. So, yeah, but yeah, the guarantee of results. I, yeah, I would not ever offer a guarantee. There's too many moving parts. And even legally, like you'd get yourself in so much trouble with that. So, yeah. Yeah. I would think that even if people do say, Oh, hundred percent guarantee, they must have like so much fine print in there to get around that. Cause if not, I, I just don't see how you can do that must be you must promise to use only our methods and only our systems and the day you take the e-collar off you violated our guarantee or something you know it, there's got I don't know I'm not saying I'm not speaking from a place of actually reading the fine print I'm just making it up <laughs> yeah so for me I would and it's like you said never is a hard word but I would be super avoidant and or wary of dog parks um I've seen and dealt with way too much from disease issues to behavior issues to safety issues. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, dog parks aren't necessarily the best maintained areas in the cities. They're, they rely on the people who use them to keep them clean, which may or may not happen. There's standing water. Usually people bring water buckets because they think that that's healthy and they leave them full. Um, and so you get a lot of waterborne disease or waterborne illness in the dog parks, which can be anything from lepto to, you know, mild diarrhea type of cases, bacterial infections. Um, but so just from a disease standpoint, they're not maintained very well. And then there's no guarantee that the dogs that are in the park are vaccinated. So you don't know what you're really getting into contact with, especially when you're talking about young puppies. Mm-hmm. Um and as far as behavior goes, like, I can't tell you how many clients I've had that were told, take your under-socialized dog to a dog park to socialize, like reactive, aggressive animals, just go into the dog park and let them, they'll work it out. And I've had people like, oh, they'll get into three or four fights, but then they calm down and everything's fine. And like, how do you keep going back and letting your dog fight with three or four dogs and then continue to stay? <laughs> right. So. Yeah, it seems like that would backfire pretty hardcore. You would think, but I don't know. So for me, taking my personal dogs to a dog park, if I went, it would be off hours. I would go into the park before I took my dogs, look for standing water, look for things that might be problematic. Mm -hmm. I want to go at off times. I wouldn't go when there's other people or too many other dogs, just depending. Um, Right. It's just. They're a good idea on paper, I think. And I think cities are working very hard to make them safer and better. But I'm still not at the point where I would happily take my dog there. There is a, a service now, um, I think it's called Sniff Spot. Yeah. People are basically airbnb their backyard. So for people who live in apartments, you can rent out somebody's backyard and take your dog over and let it play and run and get exercise, which I think is amazing. It is amazing. I will tell you. So I have a big backyard that's fenced in and I've thought about it. Um, but then, then I thought of all the, and I have not read the fine print on it. 
But then I'm, <laughs> then I thought of all like a, the legal issues that could happen. Like what if their dog jumps over my fence or like gets injured on something? Is that mm-hmm. my fault? You know, does that go to my homeowner's insurance, which I kind of assume it would, um, because it happened on your property, even if it is through a, a business, you know, I assume some waivers are signed, but the waivers don't stop people from suing you. They just maybe stop them from winning. Maybe. <laughs> um, the other pieces, as you sort of mentioned, you don't know what these dogs have. And so, mm-hmm. for example, hookworms are a very big thing in the greyhound community. Yeah. And so if I had a bunch of greyhounds in my yard, I would, I would just assume it's now covered in hookworms. So. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's, there's always that health. Yeah. And I, you know, I guess working in the animal industry, you learn very quickly, but you know, zoonotic illnesses are everywhere. And, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, that's a hard, so that's a hard one. It's like, I love the idea yeah. because everybody should have access to green space like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in my neighborhood, I was out playing with a, a neighbor's dog. It was like, Oh, your dog's so cute. And I was petting it. And she goes, Oh yeah, she has C. diff. And I'm like, why yeah. do you have this dog out on the street? like oh she's doing better I'm like you do know that zoonotic and it's totally contagious and she should not just be out here pooing in everybody's yard. oh no <laughs> yeah there was a bit of I guess lack of education from when she left the vet with a diagnosis to uh her treat she's like I'm just trying to get her some exercise and she was letting the dog just poo in everybody's yard and just, uh... I'm like whoa so you know Zoonosis is everywhere. So you just kind of have to put your shoes on and hope for the best, I guess. The other thing I'll say about the dog parks, and I, I at this point in my life, don't think I would even step foot in a dog park because I'm part of the Facebook page of a lot of different dog parks within the Milwaukee area. And I will commonly see people post and they'll say, you know, someone else's um, dog either bit me or my dog. Uh-huh. And as soon as they bit me, the people like, scrammed and I don't know if this dog like does anybody know this dog or these people because now I don't know if they have been vaccinated for rabies and now I need to get like rabies vaccinations because I have no clue yeah and rabies the rabies vaccine is a series of shots and they're all painful shots like it is not an easy treatment and it's not one that you can skip and wait to find out right if you're gonna get it right I mean because there's no cure if you start having symptoms that's that's the end of it um literally so, yeah, I just, yeah, it's it's just too high risk. And, I, and this is coming from someone who's working in shelters directly with an unknown population. Like I do find the injuries that happen at dog parks, like you said, it happens and then people just panic. And so they just grab their dog and yeah. daddle. And yeah. It's, it's too late you know, mm-hmm. to get information from them. Really, all you need to know is, are they vaccinated? Just Correct. tell me. <laughs> well, pr- I, would, I would like proof, but yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I need the name of your vet and yeah. your rabies number. Yeah. yeah. So that's so, yeah. A, it's a tough sell for me. Yes. Agreed. I'm very much agreed on that. Um, another thing I would never do, and this kind of is in line with your dog park never, is I had a, a case recently where there were uh, two dogs that were fighting in the home and the owners wanted my assistance with an intro- a reintroduction of these two animals, mm-hmm. which is fine. Um, they had been you know, doing what I had asked behind gates and on leashes. But I am a, I'm a very, uh, we've talked about this before, I'm a very risk averse person. 
And mm-hmm. so I asked these owners to work on very solid recalls for the two dogs and also muzzles because I personally, and I know everyone's risk profile is very different, but I personally would never reintroduce two, uh, especially dogs who had known to previously be aggressive to each other in the absence of fully trained muzzles and recalls. Um, and when I, it was unfortunate because when I got there, they had paid quite a bit of money for me to come out to their home and they had worked very much on the recalls. One of the muzzles looked great and one of the muzzles did not look great. And I just said, I, I can't do it. I won't, yeah. I won't do it because I'm not going to get somebody hurt or one of these dogs hurt if something goes wrong. Yeah, no, um, I agree with that. I think that might be talking more to, you know, we should definitely do a follow-up of what are five things we would definitely do yes. as trainers, you know? <laughs> so, um, and I think that's one of the things is, if I'm seeing a real personality issue between animals in my home, I would be much more willing to rehome animals at this point mm. in my life after all of my experiences. Knowing what and you now because, know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I would, you know, there's no doubt that I would be fully in love with whatever animal is living in my house. I, there's no doubt. But as part of that love, it's wanting to make sure that everything is safe and continuing to let one animal be bullied or hurt or live in fear of another animal is not a healthy living situation, especially if I could find another home that is a better fit, right? So I think that kind of speaks into that whole fighting in homes and reintroductions. Um, I think I would, I would probably not feel like I have to make every animal love every other animal and just stay, you know, Mm -hmm. because they're individuals, right? You know? There are definitely people that no matter how much cake you set between us, I'm probably not going to learn to like that person. Yeah. So um, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. All right. One of my, and this is probably a hot button issue. Oh boy. But, uh, oh boy. So I hope no one gets, takes it the wrong, but I would never use a flexi lead to, as a walking tool for my dogs. I would not take them out on one of those retractable leashes um, ever. I think not even if I was doing long line recall work, I would I would just have a long line versus a flex lead. I think um, maybe, I don't know. I, I'm like maybe with like a little dog, but man, they can get some speed behind them. Mm-hmm. They break, they're unreliable. They slip out of owner's hands very totally. easily. Yeah. They're, you know, you can forget that your line isn't locked and then your dog runs out into traffic, but you think that you have them controlled. Mm -hmm. Um, The dogs are usually way far away from the owner. So you're walking down the neighborhood and you've got this dog 10, 12 feet out in front of you. And then, you know, the neighbor's dog who is reactive comes out of their house. And now what do you do? You can't get a hold of your dog. And then the line, you know, you could really add to that scenario. And you know, don't get me wrong. It's another one of those things when they first came out, I'm like, these are amazing. Yeah. You can give your dog choice. It's wonderful. And um, we've all probably I, owned one at some point. Yeah. And I, and here's a real life example of, of, you know, anecdotal evidence is hard to overcome. Right. And I was at a national park with my sister and we had her dog at the time. She had two Dalmatians and even though Dalmatians have their own set of issues, hers were actually very sweet. And one of her Dalmatians is probably the smartest dog I've ever known. Like sweetest, most wonderful dog. When we were out walking around, dogs were on flexi leads and there's a trail of horses 
and somehow under the that scenario of perfect events, a bee stung the horse in the middle of the trail. So it reared up and scared all the other horses that were around. So the horses start to stampede. The flexi lead breaks. So the dogs were already worked up because the horses were worked up. So now the dogs are bolting. We've got people yelling everywhere. My sister, who is very skilled at handling horses, is also over there trying to help with the horses while I'm trying to wrangle her dogs that have now, you know, escaped the flexi leash. <laughs> it was just like, man, this leash was faulty. And then you start to find out like, no, that's exactly what they do when the situation gets rough, man, mm-hmm. they snap, they break, they pop out of your hands. You have very little control of your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if we'd had the dogs on flat leashes, you know, no one was hurt. Except there were a couple of riders that got thrown, but um, but no one was hurt. And fortunately, her dogs, like I said, were, are very, they were very friendly, very well-trained dogs. You know, the leashes were on because they were the requirement of the park. Um but their recalls were super strong. They didn't, they didn't wander off. Um, they didn't bother people. But, you know, the dogs with the slightly different temperament in that same situation, it could have been a nightmare situation. So yeah. um, just flexi leads are not good. And then the number of trainers I know that have burn scars from them. Um, I've talked to people who've lost fingers. They just, they're very dangerous pieces of equipment and people just you know, I don't think people know the statistics behind these leads. And I'm actually a little surprised, at least in the state of Wisconsin, that we continue to sell them. I can't remember if it's a state law or a Milwaukee law, but in order to say legally that you have control of your animal, your dog specifically, your leash can only be six feet long. And a flexi lead is always more than that. Yeah. So it's not even like a legal tool to be using. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's the, uh, I find them annoying. <laughs> I would say, I, I mean, you're going back to that conversation about never say never. I think mm. that there are very few dogs and very few circumstances in which I would be comfortable, like blessing that mm-hmm. for the vast majority. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like a dog with a strong recall that, you know, if a bunny runs across its path, it's not going to bolt you know, you've got a pretty solid dog mm-hmm. and you're out hiking somewhere and you haven't seen people for a mile. All right. Let your flexi lead fly. Off you go. Yeah. But um, really outside of something like that. Yeah. Then I'm, a flat leash is really going to be your friend. Yeah. Especially anywhere in your cars. Mm-hmm. And I, I can, yeah, my husband and I um, continue to engage in walks even without the, the dogs. And the number of people I see, I think, I feel like flexi leads are like increasing popularity again. Let me just say that. Yeah. Well, I think it was from COVID, right? A lot of inexperienced owners went out and got dogs. Mm. And so they're reaching for what looks cool, right. and what seems like a good idea. Right. And, you know, I think that there's a bit of a, a relearning curve happening right mm. now. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last item I have on my list, since I don't have five things that I would, um, I'll say never do. And I think this one actually might be a never is I would never uh, argue with my client. And I say that because for, for multiple reasons, one, if my client and I truly, you know, philosophically disagree, then we probably just shouldn't be working together. We're not going to be a, a good fit in general. And I'm, I'm more than happy to let them find who they think would be a better fit for themselves and their animal. Um, but as I'm sure you you have found as well, 
arguing with clients doesn't produce the results <laughs> you think There's it no will point. produce. And so what I will um what I will often do is if, if the client says something with which I disagree, I will just say, you know, my professional um my professional recommendation would be to do this, but of course you're the owner and you know, you can do whatever you want with your animal, but you've you've hired me for my professional recommendation and I feel the need to give it to you as such. And here's what it is. And you can take it or leave yeah. it as you so choose. Um, but I know other people might not agree with that. Um, because if you for some trainers, if they have a recommendation and the client's not following it, then the client is not engaging in the protocol in which you have set forth and they have essentially broken the contract, et cetera. So I know there could be different viewpoints on on that. Yeah. Now, um, there's, yeah, there's no point. <laughs> and and I, I see this more as when you're going in to work with a client and their animal, it is on level with working with someone and how they're parenting their child yeah um and if a you know if people have reached out and they're asking for help then that means they're at least at a point where they're going to listen but everybody has those things that they are just not going to change you know that's fine but this is going to be part of whatever plan you draw up and you know when I first started doing this and I would walk in and people would have an e-collar on their dog I'm like that e-collar is coming off we're not doing this and that's if you want to work with me and and then I started realizing like why am I doing that you know at this point if they want to use that e-collar they find some level of comfort in it you know they've paid a trainer to teach them how to use it they've got comfort in it so my approach now is I'm not going to tell you to take it off but what I am going to say is when we are doing the behavior work that I'm asking you to do, we're going to turn it off mm-hmm. and then we're going to do the behavior work. And then maybe in the next two weeks when you're doing the behavior work, we are going to take the collar off. of Just them. temporarily. Let's just see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want you to take it off while we're doing this because I don't, I want to get their headspace out of where it's been. Mm-hmm. And we're going to look at this. And when you, cause I take it as more, They've seen what the e-collar can do. Now they need to see what I can do. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be fair either for me to go in and say, this thing that you're finding comfort in and that you're saying, I now feel like I have more control than I did before. I'm not going to go in and say, take that off. You can't use it. Mm-hmm. The thing that you're, that is giving you the comfort and the confidence to keep working with your animal, get rid of it. Like mm-hmm. That's not going to get anybody anywhere. But usually I can explain where, you know, I'm trying to do something positive. And if we have this like overhanging cloud of you could be hurt at any second, um, they're probably not going to learn as quickly. Right. And so I leave it up to the owners. Um, and I do tell them, like, my hope is that by the time we get to the end of this, you won't feel like you need this tooling. But also, it's it's not my place to tell you, yes, you can use it or no, you can't. Right. So, um I've, I've learned that it's okay. And I think I've also kind of softened my stance on e-collars in general. Like, no, I wouldn't use them on my dog, like I said, but there have been scenarios that I'm like, oh, wow, you know what? This really, it's unfortunate, but this is the solution at this point. This is or, like that one in a million that I've now yeah. seen. And mm-hmm. yeah. And so, um, like you said at the beginning, never is a strong word. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's a really difficult position to take. And, and especially for somebody who's like positive work so much better than everything to be able to, to have to reach that realization. Like, you know, sometimes there's just those cases that they have to learn 
they have to learn through trial by fire kind of thing. The problem of- is everyone thinks that it's, that it's their, not, not everyone, but like, um, I think a lot of the people who use punishing techniques think, well, I'm that one in a million case. And it's like, well, you probably yeah. actually aren't. Yeah. Yeah. It's very rare. If every dog in your house needs an e-collar, then no, <laughs> you haven't just looked into all the one in a million cases in your mm-hmm. neighborhood. Um, yeah, it is rare. Like I said, I've been doing this for over 20 something years and there's, I've, I've had the one case where it was finally like, okay. And it worked. That was the other thing I had to explain to the clients. Like there is a real risk that this is going to make him bolt faster and harder through yeah. the door. There is, there is a real risk of that. Yep. And they were like, well, he's already been hit by a car once. Mm. You know, he, he doesn't have much more time. We've got to make this work. And so, um, that was the other thing we had to keep in mind is that applying a shock at a thing he's already running through could make him run faster. So, um, and, and I think that's something that people just don't understand about punishment is that you can't guarantee, speaking of guarantees, you can't guarantee that your timing or your setup is actually going to punish the thing you think it's punishing. Mm-hmm. And just like with rewards, I can't guarantee that your dog's going to learn that this reward is associated with this behavior. So, right. Yeah. And then I try to remind people, like, we were all teenagers once, remember? <laughs> Your parents tried <laughs> to teach you with rewards, and there were things that you just would not learn. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I, I like, yeah, there's no point arguing. And I think for me, coming from a, a animal owner, like if I'm, if I get a new animal in my house, and I'm, this one, I'm going to give a cat and a dog version. I would not use covered litter boxes with cats Mm. and I would be very wary about how I used puppy pads with my puppies um yeah covered litter boxes yes there are cats who love covered litter boxes but they don't all love them um covered litter boxes trap smells they trap your cat so if you're in a multi-cat household you can start having litter box issues just because you have a cover on it um Covered litter boxes tend to be smaller and cats like a little room to spread out when they're going. Um, if you're worried about litter getting everywhere, I would just get a really big Rubbermaid, one of those flat Rubbermaid triangular tubs, put litter in there, cut a little doorway hole that they can walk into and out of and call that a day. Hmm. Um, the studies that they've done on litter boxes, they should be one and a half times the length of your cat, including its tail. So wow. there is no on-shelf litter box that is big enough for your average house cat. They're all way too small. So, um, yeah, if you're dealing with a multi-cat household, I would be very particular about how I set up my litter boxes and what I pick. And for dogs, puppy pads are a great training tool. Um, there are some breeds where you're just like, yeah, you're going to have a litter box. You're going to have puppy pads for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, I mean, Yorkies, I'm looking at you, right? <laughs> So, but uh, outside of that, if I'm setting up puppy pads, I'm putting them immediately by the back door and, or through the door, by the door where I want the puppy to learn to go, because I want that behavior right off the bat, starting and trending into the area where I want them to go to the potty. Yeah. I, I see people set up the puppy pads inside of a crate and I'm like, but you don't want him peeing in a crate. So that's not the place to put them. Or like, well, he sleeps in our room with us. So we put the puppy pads in our bathroom and then we'll take him out in the morning. But you don't want him peeing in your bathroom. You just, you know, once he learns this is where I pee, 
because that's the point of puppy pads. They are a training device. Yeah. You train them where to start peeing, and then you move the pads eventually out of the house, right? <laughs> that's, it's funny. If you have an apartment, then that's different, but. It's funny you say that. I had a, a case recently where they had used puppy pads for a, a puppy who is now like an adolescent, and they put the puppy pad um, right in front of the front door. But I think where they went wrong, so just like you said, the hope is the puppy learns to pee and that that the, 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 you know, the, I think the puppy pads have some sense to them if you keep buying the same brand. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the scent and the visual cues are supposed to have control over that potting behavior. And then, like you said, you slowly would move the potty pad out to where you want to like permanently go to the bathroom. But what this family did is the potty pad was in, was right by the front door but instead of like slowly transitioning it out, they just took it away. And oh. so the unfortunate part was what that meant is that, the, and what they found is that the potty pad didn't have control over the pottying behavior that room did. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they are a tricky little training tool. And um, once you start using them, you might be stuck using them for the remainder of the time you have that particular dog, which can be expensive and annoying. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I would be very cautious about my use of puppy pads for sure. Yeah. And like I said, there are times where you just like, forget it. This dog, this dog is going to be a pee pee pad dog. Um, I don't know what it is about Yorkies, but man, they are probably the hardest breed to potty train or to house train. Hmm. I just, yeah. I'll get a call and be like, oh, my dog's soiling the house. What is it? Yorkie. Ooh. Yep. It is. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. We must not have a lot of Yorkies in Wisconsin because I've never, I've mm. never had a Yorkie client. No? Oh. They're a little great. too small for uh, Wisconsin winters. <laughs> they walk outside and they're just immediately frozen. <laughs> no. They're sweet little dogs, but man, they just are difficult for house training, which is weird, but it's sort of a notorious part of the breed. Mm -hmm. So anything but else on your, um, your never I do? I do have a five and, and this one, I don't know. I'm probably speaking outside of my area of expertise on this one, but there is clear evidence that diet and gut health have an association with behavior and just I've seen it so much. And I have, you know, I have a very limited amount of experience working in pet nutrition. Um, I would not follow trendy diets for my dog. Um, I would like raw diet. There's so much foodborne illness risk with raw diet still. And I just, I, I don't know where the distrust of the pet food company is coming from, but I would always stick with a balanced, appropriate diet for my dog. Like I, dogs that are kept lean, live longer, their diet really impacts health behavior wise and just medically. So for me, it's that trying to follow these trendy diets, like, oh, I want a, a grain-free diet, like, but dogs are scavengers, and they eat everything, and they need grains, <laughs> like, you can't cut out an entire food group from a scavenger, or, like, oh, I only want whole meat cuts for my dog, and, like, again, they have to have the, basically, the animal meal, where they're grinding up the cartilage, and the bones, and the tendons, like, they need that for nutrition, and so I think that, there's a lot of trendy pet food diets out there that are resulting in 
some real issues with behavior. And I see it a lot, especially when that high protein phase was, oh, yeah. was big. The amount of aggression in dogs was pretty high. And, you know, there's some evidence that your diet can impact these types of things. And so just keeping it research, science back, pet food, that's really where I would keep it. And keeping my dog very lean, like mm-hmm. obese dogs, obese animals, I see a lot of behavior issues around that too. So like I said, it might be a little bit of a stretch outside of my area of expertise, but you know, just as someone who's been in the field for a long time, like having a dog on an appropriate diet makes a big difference. I think proper nutrition, certified nutrition. Yes. Talk with your vet about it. Don't talk with your neighbor who once tried this bag of food and it seems great and you should order. I mean, some of these trendy diets are so expensive too. And I'm like, is it worth? That's that's my number five. Okay. We should follow up with the five things we definitely would do. Okay. As trainers. So that might be a hard one too. So I don't know. I think there's definitely some things that pop to the top of my mind. I'm like, okay. oh, okay. Right. Well, it's a cliffhanger. What What are we going to say? <laughs> What's on Jessica's <laughs> mind? Okay. Sounds good. Well, I guess with that, we will, uh, we'll see you all next month. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks. Bye.